0: John chapter 16 this evening, verse number 5. I'll do it my very best to not keep you all that long. Verse number 5, John chapter 16, the Bible says this. But now I go my way to him that sent me. And none of you asketh me whither goest thou. But because I have said these things unto you, sorrow hath filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth... It is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. When he has come, he will reprove the world of sin and of uh, righteousness and of judgment. Of sin, because they believe not on me. Of righteousness, because I go to my Father, and ye see me no more. Of judgment, because the Prince of this world is judged. I have yet many things to say unto you, but ye cannot bear them now. Howbeit when he, the Spirit of truth, is come, he will guide you into all truth. For he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak. And he will show you things to come. He shall glorify me, for he shall receive of mine and shall show it unto you, all things that the Father hath are mine. Therefore said I, that he shall take of mine, and shall show it unto you. A little while, and ye shall not see me. And again, a little while, and ye shall see me, because I go to the Father. Then said some of his disciples among themselves, What is this that he saith unto us? A little while, and ye shall not see me. And again a little while, and ye shall see me. And because I go to the Father. They said, Therefore, what is this that he saith? A little while, we cannot tell what he saith. Let's have a word of prayer, and we'll get started this evening. Father, I ask that you would help us in this time of study. I pray that you would help me. Give me very clear direction as we study this tremendous truth in Your Word. I ask in Your powerful name, Amen. Now tonight I want to start off, and I want to talk to you about the most needed and yet the most neglected tool that a Christian has at their disposal. The most needed and the most neglected tool that a Christian has At their disposal. Now throughout my life I've certainly listened to my fair share of preaching. And I've heard many preachers say something like this. And maybe you have too. But they'll say something that kind of sounds like this. They'll say, if Jesus had gone with you where you went Friday night, how would you have felt about it? If Jesus was there, would you have watched what you watched? Would you have been with who you were with? Would you have said what you said? Would you have talked about what you talked about? And certainly, as they uh, uh, say those things, we are sometimes uh, drawn to maybe guilt about some things we've done, and certainly we can't see putting Jesus in those situations. But I also recently have began to think, if Jesus had been with me Friday night, that would have been awesome. Think about it; I could have walked side by side with the Lord. He could have been right there to help me handle any situation that I come across. We start to walk in a place that probably isn't that good. He says, hey, I don't think we ought to go in here. And I think walking hand in hand with Jesus would be a pretty awesome venture, don't you? Looking at the life of the disciples, certainly Jesus insulated them from a lot of things. While He was on the earth, He took all of the criticism. Even when Pharisees and even at one point John's disciples come to Jesus, almost critical of his disciples, and he defends them and deflects away the criticism. All the the punishment, all the shame, all uh, all that went on in Jesus' ministry, Jesus pretty much handled it for those men. And I think having a, a, a fix-all right beside me at all times would be great. Think about it. You, you, you get uh, into a predicament. You say, I just don't have the answer. I don't know what to do. And, and you look over and there's Jesus standing there. And you say, hey, Jesus, how would you handle this? And, and he says, well, I would generally step out and I would say something like, peace stapler be fixed. And, and you think, wow, Jesus, that is amazing. I, I don't even have to go to Walmart now. I think walking with Jesus daily would be incredible. In verse number 7, what drew my attention to this passage is a phrase that is made by Jesus. Considering what we just talked about, how, how I don't think it could get better than having Jesus right beside me at all moment in time, so that He can help me handle any situation. Verse number 7 goes on to say this, and it is to the point where it almost doesn't make any sense. He says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is expedient for you that I go away. What? He tells these men that it would be better if He were to leave them than if He were to stay and continue the situation that they had going. And, And the disciples' only real daily problems were this, trying to keep their mouth from saying something really idiotic in the presence of Jesus. Other than that, Jesus handled everything. And so how would it be expedient for Jesus to go away? We're going to take a look tonight at just some reactions throughout this passage of Scripture that I hope will help us learn what Jesus may have been trying to say when He said, it's expedient that I go away. First of all, I want to study with you the sorrow of the disciples. The sorrow of the disciples. Verse number 5, the Bible says, But now I go my, my way to Him that sent me. And none of you asketh me whither goest thou. And I I wish that we had the time to read from about chapter 13 to where we are now in chapter 16. What you have to understand before you can really get the general context of the passage is the, the, the cross is weighing so heavy on Jesus' mind at this point. Every thought He has involves the fact that in just a few moments, the men who certainly, he he probably did not feel, were perfectly prepared for the moment and the struggles they were about to have to face. He was about to have to leave these very fragile men, and he was going to have to hang on a cross and die. These men's concept of Jesus wasn't even fully accurate at this point in time. They still thought they were following the Jewish Messiah at this point. They were asking questions or their mother was asking questions. Lord, can my son sit on the right and left hand side of your throne when you establish your kingdom? And, and I have for years struggled with that question. I could not believe the audacity of that woman to ask if they could sit in heaven on the right hand and on the left hand side of Jesus. She wasn't asking that. She was asking, in fact, it was as if they were the campaign managers of Jesus' campaign. In their mind, they thought they were the ones who were helping him. They were the protection. They were the guys that were helping. And eventually, because of their work, they were going to have a spot in his cabinet. Like Doug, uh, Chris Christie. Was it Chris Christie? or Yeah, yeah, like, similar to that. I don't think it worked so well for him, but you get the idea. They, they didn't even understand exactly who Jesus was. And now Jesus, in the last two chapters, has began to drop bombs on them like this. Guys, I'm about to leave y'all. I'm not going to be here anymore. And their entire paradigm, you imagine, these men have left their professions They've deserted their families. They have nowhere to go, no one to go back to. They have given their life for this Messiah. And now he tells them, guys, I, 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 I'm not, I'm not going to be here much longer. Their reality is coming to an end. And so you have the fear of the disciples. They're worried about what's going on. They're sorrowful because all that they thought he was, now they're just being told that they were wrong the whole time. Number one, they were focused on his departure. John chapter 14, just two chapters before if you'd like it, maybe just one page over for you. John chapter 14, verse number one. You know the verses, but it is in this context which he says this. Let not your heart be troubled. Why would it be troubled? Well, because He just broke the news to him; He's leaving. Let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in Me. In My Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto Myself. You see, He's telling them, guys, I'm leaving And the fact that he's promising to return at this point to these guys is not much of a consolation. They have been ostracized and nearly excommunicated from their previous faith. They have been run out of the synagogue and even now at this point in the Bible... Anybody who claims to be a follower of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, is being run out of the synagogue, which to a Jew would be essentially the same treatment as a leper. It would be the spiritual equivalent to a leper having to shout, unclean, unclean, every time somebody who was clean approached them. You cannot even imagine what must be going on in these minds as they ponder the departure of the One they thought was going to be their salvation, and now it turns out He's leaving them. They were focused on His departure, but they were also fearful of the difficulty ahead. You see, not only has Jesus now told them, Guys, I'm leaving. And I mentioned earlier, Jesus insulated them from a lot of conflict. But Jesus now has revealed to them that persecution is going to set in upon them like they can't even imagine. John chapter 15, right, uh, just a page flip over. John chapter 15, verse 18, the Bible says this If the world hate you, now. John 15 and John 16, these are the same day. These are essentially the same uh, uh, conversation. This is, this is why the disciples are so sorrowful. Jesus looks to them and says, If the world hate you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you're of the world, the world would love his own. But because you're not of this world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. Remember the word that I said unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord. If, if they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And you notice how he's saying, they've been persecuting me and I've been protecting you from it. But when I leave, you're going to be the focus of that persecution. He goes on to say, uh, uh, if they have kept my saying, they will keep yours also. But all these things will they do unto you for my name's sake because they know not him that sent me. It goes on all the way to the bottom of the chapter. And, and, and Jesus says, guys, it is going to get hard. Now, not only are they sorrowful because the one who they've trusted in is leaving. Now, the one who they've trusted in says, and, and I don't want to color it the wrong way. Maybe you're thinking of like a backup plan of returning back and just kind of getting into your old way of life. I'm sorry to tell you, that's not going to happen. You're going to be hated. You're going to be despised. Some of your own families will reject you. You will face some of the most cruel punishments that anybody has ever faced in the history of the world. For me. And as they begin to... The ponder, the depth, and and the reality of these words, Jesus looks at them and gives them the one consolation he can give them. So I want to, secondly, look at the strengthening of the Lord. He even does it in chapter 15 after he tells them the world hated you. Verse number 26 of that chapter. But when the Comforter is come, whom I will send unto you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth which proceedeth from the Father, he shall testify of me, and ye shall also bear witness, because ye have been with me from the beginning. Verse number 1 of that same chapter. These things have I spoken unto you that ye should not be offended. They shall put you out of the synagogues. Yea, the time cometh that whosoever killeth you will think that he doeth God's service. And these things will they do unto you, because they have not known the Father nor me. But these things have I told you, that when the time shall come, ye may remember that I told you of them." And these things I said not unto you at the beginning, because I was with you. When I was with you, I could protect you. But when I leave, I can't physically be there. So I will send you someone even greater than me. In this case, the Comforter will come. Now, how is the Comforter better than Jesus saying, Hey guys, just get away. How is the Spirit of God easing our pain and easing our difficulty better than Jesus Himself insulating us from that? See, most Christians when we begin to face persecution or we begin to face difficulty want Jesus-style answers. We want Jesus to just come down like a battering ram and remove them. But do you ever wonder why the disciples had such elementary faiths while they were with Jesus? Do you ever wonder why when they're in some of the greatest moments in all the Bible, like the Mount of Transfiguration, Peter has the audacity to even bring up Moses' and Elijah's name? Do you ever wonder why their faith may have been held back or weakened a little bit? I suggest to you that it was because Jesus took care of all their problems. He insulated them from having them. So their their problems or or their issues were sitting around a campfire and asking the wrong question. But Jesus says, guys, for you to grow, you're going to have to face things. And I can't just come in and sweep up the problem and just take care of it, which is oftentimes what we are guilty of praying. You say, oh Lord, I can't can't deal watching my children be sick like this, so Lord, I just pray that You take care of it. And the Lord says, no, I've got a much better plan in place. I've given You the Comforter that can strengthen you and comfort you and guide you and, and help you in this time grow your faith. I'm telling you, the moment when Jesus leaves, the time from Jesus' ascension to Acts chapter 2 is absolutely minimal. And yet, the man who preaches on the day of Pentecost looks nothing like the man who was at the Mount of Transfiguration. What's the difference? He's now faced problems without Jesus there to take care of him. You see, Jesus promised that we would have conflict in this world. He specifically references persecution in this passage. And, you, and we, as a people, are certainly not a per- persecuted people like others have been. Amen. That's right. But to say that we are not facing persecution is to call the Lord a liar. Because he says that all who live godly, all who follow me, all who keep my commandments, will suffer persecution. So at some level, we are not looking down the barrel of a gun having to deny our faith in Jesus, but we, if we are walking like we ought to be walking, have to be facing persecution or Jesus Himself lied. Throughout centuries, Christians who have lived for God have always faced persecution. Uh, The last verse in chapter uh, 15, verse 27, calls His disciples witnesses. The Bible word witness there is the word martos in the Greek, and that is the actual word that we get our English word martyr from. You see, to be a witness for Jesus and to be a martyr for Jesus are interchangeable. It is the same thing. You cannot deny your faith when you're standing at someone's door, looking at them, begging them, and pleading with them to accept the love of Jesus Christ. It is is a truth beyond all denial that throughout centuries Christians have faced persecution. John Downing wrote in the book, The History of Romanism, which was published in 1845, the Roman Catholic Church has put to death as many as 50 million heretics between AD 606 and the mid-1800s. These heretics were people who denounced uh, salvation by works, infant baptism, purchases of indulgences, the corruption of the mass and the priesthood. In other words, people just like you and me. And you say, well, I'm sure it's gone down since then. In 1997, the New York Times posted an article that in the 20th century, more Christians had been martyred for their faith than in the 19 previous centuries combined since Jesus had departed from the earth. It is estimated at this moment... There are a hundred million Christians suffering persecution right now. And if we will live godly in Christ Jesus, we will see some of it as well. So what do we do? If the promise of conflict in the world is truth, which I believe if Jesus claimed it, and the Bible says it, there is no way it cannot be true, what do we do? Well, Jesus promises the comfort through the Spirit. Verse number 7, the Bible says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is expedient for you that I go away, for if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. Now, I find it amazing that he uses that word to describe the Holy Spirit there. You see, this is not a name of the Holy Spirit that is often used. This name is Parakletos in Greek, and as far as I can tell, I have not counted, but it is is used less than about ten times in all of Scripture that the Holy Spirit is referred to as the Comforter, and about four of them are in these four chapters. And they all deal with His comfort in our conflict. His care when we are going through persecution. Jesus says, it's expedient that I would go away because there's going to come so much persecution that I can't take care of it all by myself. So I will send one who can. I will send the Comforter. The Comforter, uh, uh, one man defined all of Uh, all of this that it entails, the Comforter by Strong's concordance is defined as one who was sent on another's behalf. In other words, Jesus left, so He sent the Comforter in His place. One uh, Bible scholar took time and he listed out all that this entails, and he said that it means counselor, intercessor, helper, one who encourages and comforts. And I began to think of all that Jesus offered the disciples while He was on this earth. And I believe that everything He offered Peter and James and John and Andrew in bodily present form is offered to us through the Holy Spirit. You see, for Peter, it was a quick reprimand, was it not? Every once in a while, Peter would open his mouth And every once in a while, Peter got the right answer. So for Peter, it was a reprimand occasionally and an encouragement sometimes. You see, when Peter said something out of whack, Jesus would say, Get get, get thee behind me, Satan. Don't don't even talk about that. But when when, when Peter had the courage and the faith to say, Lord, I say that thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Uh, uh, the Lord looks at him and says, uh, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed this unto you. You see, for Peter, Jesus served as the occasional reprimand and the occasional encouragement. When you come to church, the Holy Spirit ought to serve as your occasional reprimand and your occasional encouragement. You see, the preacher does not do that. The preacher presents the Word of God. As much as we try, as creative as we try to be, I, frankly, when I stand behind the pulpit, I feel so unqualified. I feel so unable to perform the way that I need to. I feel as if my words will always fall flat. And so I beg and I plead that the Holy Spirit would take them to your heart and do things that I never could do with them. So occasionally, you need to be reprimanded. Occasionally, when the Word of God speaks to you, you ought to fall to your knees out of shame, out of guilt. And you need to approach an altar, whether that altar is at your seat or whether that altar is here at the up front of the room, and you say, Lord, I'm so sorry. But sometimes He serves as your encourager. Sometimes He looks at you, and you may be struggling through life, and you feel as if nothing goes right. Every, t- every day you struggle. Every day you fight to survive. And it feels like nothing is being successful And occasionally you come to church and the Holy Spirit says, just keep on keeping on. You're exactly where I want you to be. You're doing exactly what I want you to do. You are where I need you to be and you're who I need you to be. Just keep on serving where you're at. And that's an encouragement. For John, Jesus Christ served as the place where John felt secure. See, John was the disciple whom Jesus loved but I believe the reason that John often labels himself like that is because John loved Jesus so yeah. deeply. Amen. And he even says things like, John would be the one who would just, around the campfire when everybody else was talking and, 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 and talking about the day's miracles and events, John would just go and lay his head on the chest of Jesus. Because it's where he felt secure. That's where He could rest and know that everything was alright. And you know what? The Holy Spirit is that for us. We cannot go to Jesus' breast tonight and and lay our head on Him, but I tell you tonight, you can rely on the Comforter of Almighty God to let you know that when you wake up tomorrow, everything's going to be alright, because God is still God of the day and God of the night. And sometimes you just need a little bit of, it's going to be okay. The other night I got on Twitter and I began to look at all the news articles and I got discouraged and I got depressed. And then I said, I need to watch something funny on TV. So I turned on something funny on TV and they were talking about the news articles from the day and I got more discouraged and more depressed. And occasionally what I need is a place to go where everything is okay. And so I look to the Holy Spirit of God. To Andrew, Jesus was the one who encouraged service. See, Andrew was just a normal guy. That's why I think my parents named me after him. They expected nothing from me. <laughs> okay, can you find five loaves and two fishes, Andrew? That's just look for somebody short and, and Andrew. Andrew was just an absolutely normal guy. And yet Jesus would would turn to him and say, Hey, uh, is there anything around here to eat? And Andrew would just do his very best and he would come back and say, Lord, I don't know what they are among so many, but this is what they are. And it was Jesus who caused him to serve. That's what the Holy Spirit does for us. He motivates us. He ought to give us a compassionate heart towards the lost. If we don't have a compassionate heart towards the lost, we are of all people most miserable. We've lost our zeal for the cross. We've lost our zeal for the power of the gospel in people's lives. We've lost our desire to see people changed by the glorious message that once changed us. So what does the Holy Spirit do? It motivates us to serve. For Philip, Jesus was a challenge to his faith. You see, one day Jesus looks at Philip. We know almost nothing of Philip. Other than Philip was the only disciple whom Jesus found himself. You see, Philip was, uh, Jesus approached Philip and said, Follow me. Most of the other disciples were reached through other disciples. You see, Andrew first findeth his own brother, Simon Peter. And that's the pattern of the church. So I believe that's why you see that take place. But but Philip was unique in this regard. Other than that, we know that he brought, uh, uh, I, I believe it is uh, uh, Bartholomew. Uh, we call him Judas, but we, we don't call him that because we get him confused. I believe it's Bartholomew. He brought him and... And we know nothing else other than that. But one day, Jesus looks and he needs something to uh, 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 feed all of these people. And he says, Philip, what are we going to do? And Philip says, Well, 200 pennyworth penny wouldn't even be enough to feed this many people. And Jesus was challenging his faith. He was, Jesus was wanting Philip to not rely on what he could come up with, but what Jesus could come up with. You know, that's what the Holy Spirit does for us. He challenges our faith. The Holy Spirit ought to be asking you at the turn of this new year to read more. To learn more. To listen more to good godly music. I have to confess uh, the vast majority of my days are filled with uh, sports radio, but over the last week and a half, I've been—I've not solely gone to this, but I've been playing more music in my truck, spiritual music. And I have to be honest, it's encouraged me. It's—it's—it's it's, it's changed my outlook. I get in my truck and I just start screaming "Amen," and I got a tear down in my eye, and some I look over to the person next to my left and. And, and they think that my girlfriend just broke up with me, but I'm shouting because Jesus still saves. I challenge you. And that's what the Holy Spirit does. He challenges us. You see, if Jesus was walking by your side every single day, the reason He said, it is expedient that I go away, is because He was saying, There is nothing that I have to offer you that He does not. And I don't know about you, but I grow jealous of the disciples sometimes. The fact that they got to listen to His teaching. The fact that the parables, not only did they hear the parables taught, they got to see the object teachings with them. They probably know what was written in the sand. Who would like to know that? The first question I'm going to ask when I get to heaven, Lord, what did you write in the sand? Oh, I was making the Nike check mark. That's where they came up. <laughs> Who knows what he wrote in the sand? They probably do. I grow jealous of the disciples sometimes. And as I studied this, I realized, they ought to be jealous of me. Because I never had a time in my life where my faith was held back. Because I clearly saw the evidence right in front of my faith. My faith has always been totally reliant on what God's Word says and what the Comforter, the Holy Spirit of God has taught me. That's why the Bible says when the Spirit of God comes, when the Comforters come, He will guide you into all truth. I believe the reason, as I stated earlier, the most neglected and the most needed tool in the Christian's life, I believe the reason we're seeing such feeble Christianity these days is because the doctrine of the Holy Spirit is absolutely perverted and misunderstood. Amen. You see, Jesus is not down here helping us. He's in heaven praying for us. And God is not down here helping us. He's in heaven hearing the prayers of Jesus, overseeing everything. Who's down here helping us? The one we know the least about. Amen. The Holy Spirit of God. Oh, we're going to face conflict in this world. But Jesus promises comfort through the Holy Spirit of God. Not only does he, uh, do we want to look at the sorrow of the disciples, the strengthening of the Lord, I want to look at the significant differences of the Spirit of the Lord and Jesus. Certainly, they're both part of the Trinity. I'm not saying that they are are not one and the same. Please don't misunderstand that. But why would Jesus say, it is expedient? In other words, it is better for me to go and send Him. Well, because there are certain things that the Holy Spirit of God had to offer that Jesus simply could not. Take your Bible to John chapter 14. As I mentioned, John 14 through 16 all speaks almost entirely of the same subject matter. It all speaks of persecution, of struggle. Jesus makes many promises, but then He gets on the point that the world will hate them. John chapter 14, verse number 16, the Bible says, And I will pray the Father, and He shall give you another comforter. See, Jesus was saying there, by saying another comforter, He was saying to the disciples, Up until this point, I've been comforting you. You see the the substitution there? Jesus says, I've been comforting you boys this whole time, but I'm going to send another comforter. Notice this, that He may abide with you forever. Well, there we see our first difference. The first difference is the Holy Spirit of God is a permanent fixture in the Christian's life. He will abide with you forever. See, the very moment that Jesus veiled Himself in the flesh, came down and became that little baby boy in that manger, there was no way Jesus could stay forever. So He sent the Holy Spirit who could. He's always with us. Now, in the Old Testament, He was not always there for them. You see, there was temporary indwelling in the Old Testament. And I'm not getting sidetracked. I'm coming back around to something here. But in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit would come upon people for temporary acts of amazing power. In other words, the Spirit of God would come upon Samson to do amazing feats of strength. But they did not always have it. Or in other words, why would Jesus say, well, I have to send him. He would have already been here, you see. But there's a scripture in Psalm chapter 51 where David, King David, who is the same man who one day said as he penned the scriptures, it was as if the Holy Spirit of God was controlling his tongue. I believe because he was the king of Israel, he had sensed and felt the Holy Spirit probably more than any man in the Old Testament at that point. And in Psalm 51, David's first request as he prays his repentance prayer is this. And take not, find Holy Spirit from me. He was worried that his sin would cause the Holy Spirit, its power and its comfort and its ability to to help David with wisdom and all other matters. He was afraid that this infraction was going to cause him to lose the Holy Spirit. So in his confessional prayer, he says, God, don't take the Holy Spirit from me. Christian, you don't have to worry about it. The Holy Spirit of God comes upon every child of God at the moment of their salvation. The Bible says... And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed into the day of redemption. You get saved, you are sealed by the Holy Spirit of God. And it is a permanent fixture, Jesus says, He can abide with you forever. Not only is He a permanent fixture, He's a personal fixture. He's a personal fixture. Verse number 17, chapter number 14. The Bible says... Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, but it seeth him not, neither knoweth him, but ye know him, for he dwelleth with you, and shall be in you. Now there's a little bit of confusion because all throughout our childhood years in Sunday school, we're taught that Jesus lives in our heart. That's simply not true. The Holy Spirit of God lives in our heart. The Bible tells us in so many places, 2 Corinthians one twenty two, Who hath also sealed us and given us the earnest of the Spirit in our hearts. That's the promise of the Spirit in our hearts. Galatians 4.6, And because ye are sons, God hath sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. You see, you get saved. The Spirit of God takes permanent passionate, powerful residence in your heart. Throughout the course of Jesus' ministry, there were times when crowds, and I don't want this to sound wrong or, or bad, but the crowds would press upon Him so much, His attention and His focus could not be given to all of them at the same time. You see, people would be calling for him, people would be pulling for him, and then that's when the woman touches his garment. He was was trying to minister and somebody needed him, but she couldn't get his attention. And and there's also other stories where uh, men just couldn't get to Jesus uh, 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 like the man born of four. Remember, they... uh, Jesus was ministering to all of these people, and there was no room for them to come in, so it took an extraordinary act of faith and commitment for four men to get their one friend to Jesus. During Jesus' ministry, we find that there are times when He could not handle everything around Him all at the same time. And that's what I mean. I don't want that to sound bad, but... Him in His human body, He could not minister to everybody at all times, in every place, when He needed to. And yet, that's what makes the Holy Spirit so great for us is because when I'm dealing with my struggle, and Miss Vicky is dealing with her struggle, Brother Collins is dealing with his struggle, and Brother Timmons is dealing with his struggle, we're not all at Jesus' feet. Jesus, help me. No, Jesus, help me. My problem's bigger. No, my problem's bigger. We go to the Holy Spirit of God and He says, hey, I've got it taken care of. Amen. And that's good. He's personal. And He is always with us. And I believe that we ought to thank the Lord for that. The fact that when we pray our prayers, the Holy Spirit is the transformer, if you will, that takes that prayer to the feet of Jesus, who then casts it at the the feet of the throne of God. You see, the Holy Spirit is our way to Jesus Christ. He's a permanent fixture, a personal fixture. Thirdly, He's a powerful fixture. Verse number 20 of chapter 14. I want you to see this and we're done. The Bible says, At that day ye shall know that I am in my Father. You see, that sounds very Trinity-ish. It sounds very one and the same, does it not? I am in my Father, and this is kind of a side note, and ye in me. And that's scriptural because we're to abide in Christ, we are to uh, uh, live in Christ, and and we're placed in Christ, and so that's scriptural. Then verse number 20 says, and I in you. But we realize that Jesus isn't in our heart. So how is He in us, and He in the Lord, and and, and the Lord working for us? How does that all happen? Because the Holy Spirit that is in us, is the same Holy Spirit that was sent to us by the Son of God, who is the same Son of God, who is our bridge, our intercessor, our advocate with the Father. And the Holy Spirit is powerful. And unfortunately, liberal contemporary denominations have perverted the doctrine of the Holy Spirit's power and the place that it has in the Christian's life. Look, if, if all the Holy Spirit can do for me is make me sound like a toddler, I don't really want it if He can make me say some gibberish that absolutely nobody understands and nobody interprets the right way according to Scripture, then I'm, I am i don't want any part of that Holy Spirit. But if the Holy Spirit is, as according to uh, Scripture, the same Spirit that Jesus retreated to the wilderness before His ministry ever began so that He might commune with the Father, and the Bible says He returned... <laughs> In the strength of, and the power of the Spirit. It was the power of the Spirit that helped him in ministry. The Bible says in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, But ye shall receive power. Okay, good. I need power. A lot more right now with pneumonia because I'm starting to feel it, y'all. But, uh, uh, I need power. So Jesus, where's it coming from? After that, the Holy Ghost is come upon you. The Holy Ghost is your power. It is the source of your strength. Bible says in Luke chapter 24, Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry ye into the city of Jerusalem until ye be endued with power from on high. Jesus says, I don't want you even to enter into ministry unless I've sent the Holy Spirit upon your lives. One of the reasons that there is so much ineffective ministry is because there is powerless ministry. There are ministers who are ministering outside of the power of the Holy Spirit of God. So we see no results. We see no fruit. So the Holy Spirit is our power. I believe the Holy Spirit is a powerful help for us. If you were to ask a contractor what his most let me let me see how to say this. If you were to ask a contractor what his most valuable tool is, I believe it would depend upon the job at which you asked him to do. For instance, if you asked a, a contractor to cut a bunch of lumber, if you asked Brother Billy what his most valuable tool was, as he cut all of this wood, I, I would venture to say he would say the saw. If you were to ask a contractor what his most valuable tool as he pre- pre- prepares bids for jobs and he, and he has to figure out how much material for each job, if you asked him what his most valuable tool was, I believe he would probably say his tape measure. He's got to know the lengths. He's got to know the, the, the square footage. And with every question you ask that contractor depending upon the job which he is doing, is the tool that he'll need. You see, if you ask him to drive a bunch of nails, he's not going to ask for a pencil. He's going to ask for a hammer, and that would be the most valuable tool. But if you ask a Christian what the most valuable tool that God has given them is, you would get all sorts of answers. Oh, certainly some would say, I believe it's God's Word. But did you know we could not understand God's Word if the Holy Spirit was not to illuminate it to us? The lack of illumination is where so many false denominations come from. Misunderstanding Scripture is where uh, people go wrong in their belief systems. Some people may even say prayer, but I would say to you, if we are saying our prayers, they're probably not reaching the roof why the Bible says the Holy Spirit groans and utters for us in ways that we can't even begin to understand. And when we don't even have the words to say, that's when the best prayers are prayed. So who is our biggest asset in prayer? What's the Holy Spirit of God? In evangelism, some would say, well, a charismatic personality, maybe some salesman experience, maybe... Maybe somebody who's got a little joke or two or somebody who can make somebody laugh right before they get into the, the, the pitch of the gospel. I say to you, the most shy, bashful person could be the best soul winner if they only went out in the power of the Holy Spirit of God. The Bible says that there will be times when people won't even know what to say and they, not, they don't need to think about what to say because the Holy Spirit would give them what they need to say at the moment when they need to say it. Christian... A contractor may have all various different answers, but our answer ought to always be the same. Our biggest asset, our most valuable tool in living this daily life is the Holy Spirit of God. And frankly, we know nothing about Him. We know nothing about how to pray in Him. We know nothing about how to sense Him when we're walking our daily life. We certainly know nothing about how to ask Him to help us as we witness to our friends and family members. But Jesus says, it's far better to have Him with you than it is if even I were standing right there. So, church, I challenge you. Let's be a church who endeavors. to to enact the Holy Spirit of God, to find out how we can utilize all that He has for us. I'm not talking about when we're at our lowest point in our life, that's when we start to discover the Comforter. I promise you it's better to know the Comforter before you ever get to the bottom. Let's be a church who begins to ask the Lord to teach us what it means to know the Comforter, the Holy Spirit. And I believe that would help us in our understanding of Scripture. I believe that would help us in the effectual fervent prayers that we would pray each and every day. I believe it would help us in our evangelism as we go out to this community. Or, we could just stay the same. We could just continue to live in a complete cloud of Unknown about him. But the Holy Spirit deserves our worship. He deserves our acknowledgement in what he can do for us. Because we cannot do for God what we need to without him.